All right, welcome back to another episode, episode 98 of the Walking Closer podcast. This is part eight of the Challenging Perspective series, and this episode is titled Healings, Clients, and Politics. So the New Testament is filled with complex narratives, narratives where complicated social relationships unfold before our eyes. In today's episode, we'll continue to unpack some of these complexities. Glad you could join me. Let's get started. If you lived in the Middle Eastern region during the time of Jesus, or even centuries after Jesus, and, and let's let's say you witnessed what Jesus was doing, or or let's say you you heard about it, or maybe maybe it was read to you through a letter that was being passed around. Maybe it was a letter by one of the disciples who was there. They're taking it all in as it was happening. They, they heard it with their own ear, saw it with their own eyes. They experienced Jesus and what he was doing, and they, they're now sharing with you their experience and what it means for you. And the language they use, the analogies, the, the metaphors would have painted various pictures for you, and these pictures would have been something you could relate to, something you could connect to. And when it came to Jesus, most often in these letters, Jesus was painted as a broker or mediator between God and people or clients. See, this is a picture that would have resonated with you if you lived during this time where the patronage system was the most common way of operating and getting ahead in life. And the Apostle Paul presented Jesus as this very image, as a co-worker with God. In other words, he presents this partnership between them that resembles the partnership between a patron and a broker. And remember, a broker was someone who connected the client, the person, uh, the one who was needing a favor, connected the client and the patron together. He was like a go-between or a mediator between the two. So, for instance, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist. And see, if we stop right there, immediately you see how Paul is actually pointing to God as the chief benefactor, our chief benefactor. And one Lord, he goes on to say, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. You see that relationship there? You have the patron, that is God. You have Jesus as the broker, and we are the clients. And when the apostle Peter retells his experience with Cornelius in Acts 10, he says, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good. The word there is the form, uh, the verb form of the noun benefactor. He went about doing good. Jesus is the benefactor. What Jesus was doing was benefiting others and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Again, again, this relationship between, between the, the patron, the client, and the, ben, the, the broker that is in between the two, connecting the two together. See, it's important to remember, 
also that brokers were considered patrons as well. And, and these are these are the pictures you see over and over again when you look at what Jesus did in the gospel accounts. So Jesus went around teaching, right? And the very the very act of teaching was considered a gift. You would you would expect to be able to go to your patron and seek advice and and wisdom. And when Jesus feeds people, it points back to what patrons often did. See, I'm told that these patrons would would oftentimes provide what we call box lunches for their clients. And so when Jesus feeds thousands of people, it resembled what a patron would do on various levels. So when Jesus said in John 6, 26, you were seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves, it was only natural for people to do this, especially considering how difficult it was to feed your family when those in power were controlling access to the goods that people needed. And, and in this way, what Jesus does resembles what the powerful elite would use in, in sponsoring games or building projects or helping you know during pandemics or plagues, etc. He was a public patron or public patronage is what we see here. But here's the thing. The gospel accounts point to the fact that Jesus was able to offer these things because of who he was connected to, because of his relationship with God. So for instance, you have in Matthew chapter 11, verse 27, where Jesus says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Again, there's this picture, this unique relationship, this unique connection that, that Jesus has with God, and what you would expect between a patron and a client, being able to choose to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Uh, another picture, John 6, 31 and 32. Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father. Okay, again, Moses there seems to be in the place of a broker, whereas God is the actual benefactor or the patron in this situation. But Jesus says, but truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. And then he drops down in verse 35 and says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Again, this unique connection that Jesus has with God, presenting him as a broker to the patron and client. Uh, again, John eight sixteen. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Again, another image of this unique relationship that Jesus, unique connection that Jesus has with, with God and presenting him as that broker. So Jesus seems to even present himself as having this unique relationship with God, and because of this connection that he has with God, he is able to offer what he offers to people or clients. And then the way people responded to Jesus was even typical of how clients would respond to benefactors or patrons. See, the typical way a client or a beneficiary would demonstrate gratitude was by 
spreading the news, building up the reputation of the patron or the one who gave them the favor that they needed. And you see this over and over again in these accounts where we are told that that the word of what Jesus did spread throughout the areas. So, And this happened even when Jesus told them not to do it, right? You ever wonder why? Why did they do this anyway? And I've heard lots of different explanations, but in light of the patron system and how people um, acted and responded and what they thought was be even expected of them, uh, it makes more sense. So just think about it. Jesus... Jesus says he does this thing for them, but then he tells them, don't go and say anything, which would be quite the opposite of what they would be expected to do or what they even thought that they would be expected to do, um, what their patron would want them to do. But when Jesus says this, it demonstrates the fact that he was not a glory seeker. He was not asking them to spread the word like many patrons would have expected. And people would have saw this and, and, and thinking, wow, you're doing this, not expecting anything in return. Like, they saw this as a genuine and, and, and being done out of pure generosity. And not only was Jesus a generous benefactor, he was truly sincere, not, not so concerned about his reputation and, and gaining popularity in, in the usual way. He wasn't offering favors as a way to rise the, you know, the social ladder. He was genuinely sincere with what he was doing. Now, Imagine you receive this favor, and this is the impression that you have of this person. What would that do to you? What effect do you think that this would have had on these people? I imagine it would have hit them even harder with a deeper sense of gratitude for the favors that he offered. Like, with that deeper sense of gratitude, they could... They, they couldn't contain themselves. Like, how could they not spread the word about this man who did this favor for them and wasn't expecting anything in return? Like, literally did not want them to go and tell other people. And that sense of, man, overwhelming generosity would stir up this overwhelming sense of gratitude within the one who's receiving it. And, well, they could just, they could do all only what they could do, what they knew to do. And that was, wow, can you believe this? Look at this guy. And so this resulted in crowds and crowds of people just seeking favors from Jesus. And he he ends up with this massive following, this entourage everywhere he went, which would, quite honestly, was what these wealthy elite patrons, that's how they looked. Going around with crowds following them around, and well, the crowds may only be you know five, maybe ten people, but yet you're in public and you have these crowds, and that when people saw that, they knew that this was an important, powerful person, and uh, this is this is the image that you see with Jesus and these crowds following him, you know, seeking favors and people following him everywhere he went, and his reputation that begins to build and spread far and wide. Like These were the perfect ingredients to amass a powerful base for a political agenda. And, and this, is, this, is how, this is how many, especially the political elite, would have interpreted what was going on, because this is what they would have done themselves. This is how things were done during those times. But this isn't what Jesus was trying to do. 
and at least at least not according to New Testament writers, consistently, they present Jesus as a mediator, granting access to God in the most generous way. And when the Apostle Paul was writing to his his younger pupil, Timothy, he says in 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men. Again, you have this relationship. God is being presented as this chief benefactor, if you will, this patron, and Jesus is the mediator between clients or the beneficiaries, which are people, people. And then he says, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. There's the the beneficial act, which he goes on to say is the testimony given at the proper time or in the best possible way. So Paul says, for there is one God and there's one mediator between God and men and the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. That is the testimony given at the proper time or in the best possible way. And then doing this in the best possible way, he did this as the greatest at the greatest cost to to himself. He gave himself for us, is the language used in the New Testament. He died on our behalf. In Galatians 1 4, Ephesians 5 2, Titus 2 14. That's all language that is used to describe or to interpret what happened. And in doing so, he did it to bring us all that comes with this access to God. Now, understand this. When people would have read this, would have listened to this, would have seen this, would have interpreted it this way, benefactors or patrons put themselves at risk when it came to helping others, which is why, generally speaking, they they, they chose who they would help, and those decisions weren't made lightly, okay? Because in doing so, in doing so, you were potentially putting yourself out there. You're putting your neck on the line here. You're putting yourself at risk. And sometimes, you know, they would they would incur excessive expenses on behalf of other people and might find themselves in very dangerous situations and would be expected to remain faithful, remain loyal, regardless of the circumstances. When things went south, still would depend upon one another. That was the relationship between the patron and the client. And so you would have to trust to be able to know that this person was dependable, and you would have to expect that. And so, again, you know, you would be very choosy about who you would take under your wing. But regardless, you were putting yourself at risk. And when this would be the case, it was common when people would put themselves at risk at, at extreme financial loss. Let's just say things went south, um, it was it was common to hear people talk about these situations and say things like he gave himself for others. It was this was a a common phrase used to honor people, patrons who put themselves at risk in in you know helping other people. And this is the language used to describe Jesus. This is the picture that's being painted. And this is what the Apostle Paul is doing in Galatians 2.20 when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And in this way, Paul is using this common phrase to honor what Jesus did as as a patron patron or as a broker. And and so Paul got that connection. And... uh, the connection that he got was that Jesus did what Jesus did was the the 
pinnacle of generosity or, or grace. You see this in Romans 5, uh, verses 6 through 8, where he says, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He put himself on the line. He gave and the, the, the ultimate risk factor here, right? And Paul interpreted that in this very sense. And this is the pinnacle of generosity. And with this image, Jesus is presented as one who literally spent everything he had on being our benefactor or mediator. Again, Philippians 2, verses 6 through 7. Um, Paul says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Again, in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Again, Jesus is painted as this broker who was willing to go to the extremes on our behalf. Give it all he had. So over and over again, Jesus is painted as this broker and patron to us, his clients. And that's at least how he was interpreted by those who lived during those times. Now, let's let's look a little closer at this, and specifically at Jesus' methods, like the reasons why, right? This is the image that is painted. So, of course, he was a teacher, but he was also a healer. And what's interesting about this is while Jesus was the healer, it was God who gets the credit. It was God who gets glorified because Jesus was seen as the broker, the one who gave them access to God. You see, God was seen as not only the cause of the sickness, but also as the healer. And that might be kind of difficult for us to conceive of, but this is how things were seen. This is what they believed. So, and, and you see this in, in several different instances. You see this in the Gospels where this is pointed out. The sickness and disease were often seen as a judgment from God upon someone. doesn't mean that it was, but it was believed to be. And it, they, they believed that if you were sick or diseased in some way, it was thought that God was displeased with you for some reason. Maybe it had to do with you or, or maybe even your parents or your forefathers, but it was believed that this was God's judgment on you. And then Jesus comes along and says things like, be made clean, demonstrating his ability to connect people with God who could make them clean. See, Jesus comes along, it doesn't necessarily change people's perceptions or belief about why they're sick and how they got sick necessarily, but in the, the reality of that context, you have someone coming along saying, be made clean, and people are, are made clean. People see that as, oh, this person can put me in connection with the one who can actually make me clean, which was believed that only God could do that. Now, when we read these texts, we can see how he was able to connect them with God because he was God in the flesh. But this is not necessarily how they thought or how they saw things. This would only be realized later on after Jesus' death, okay? And then you have a better understanding and better interpretations of what, what happened. Uh, 
But when you look at the specific situations in which Jesus healed, you even in these specific situations, you see the responses uh, from the people. The way that they responded were, well, they responded in the, the, the typical client-patron relationship way. It was what was expected. So, for instance, when Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law, what does she do? She turns around and she serves him. She's returning favor for favor, grace for grace. And then, then not long after that, Jesus uses Peter's boat to teach from it. And then he turns around and fills Peter's nets with fish. So what we're seeing in all of this is this reciprocal nature of favors that would be common in a patron-client relationship in this society. Whether Remember a few episodes back, we mentioned the fact that in order to get things done, either you, were, you couldn't do it on your own, you would look for favors from people who were your equals, or you would search for someone who was socially superior. Irregardless of the nature of the relationship, you are living in a social context where there is expected reciprocal favors. Someone does something for you, you return the favor. Nothing comes for free. And you will you knew that, you live by that mantra, you believe that, and to do otherwise would be shameful. Okay? And so what you're seeing in all of this is this reciprocal nature of favors that would be common in a, in this type of society. And what's even more interesting is to consider the different responses between men and women to the favors Jesus gives them. So, and this this is this is fascinating to me. I'm told that the the dominant value among men was spontaneity or just doing what the situation calls for. Whereas the dominant value for women was more calculated and planned strategies. Uh, hence Proverbs 31, the, the virtuous woman. And so when men are healed, what do they do? They immediately go out and tell people. And when women are healed, what do they do? They immediately get up and serve. Now, there are two different responses, but in both ways, these were acts of favor that honored the person, honored the patron, honored the one who was giving them favors. So in this world, people lived by that mantra that nothing comes free, hence reciprocal favors. That's why we see these responses. And as I, as I mentioned earlier, all of this put together created this massive following uh, Jesus, Jesus was perceived by many as this amazingly generous patron who had this massive base, and the people were behind him. And the more this following grew, the more complicated things were going to get. The larger your base of supporters, the more power you would have to at least it would be perceived as, you know, your desire was you had some political motives. The, the bigger your base, the more power you would have to push any political agenda. And I think that the Judean elite, I think that that's what they saw. I think they saw things in this way. They interpreted things in this way. So think about it. Jesus, in the very beginning of his ministry, he is in Judea, and he learns that the Pharisees are beginning to take notice of how he's beginning to have more disciples than even John the Baptist. And, and remember, John was a big deal. So to have more disciples than John would put you on the radar 
of those in power who wanted to maintain that power. And when Jesus realized that the Pharisees in Judea have taken notice, what does Jesus do? He leaves Judea, and he returns to Galilee, and he spends most of his time in Galilee and the regions and the regions around. He dips every now and then back into Judea, but most of his time is outside this region. And even, even at one point, uh, they actually send scribes and Pharisees from Jerusalem into Galilee to question Jesus, right? Which tells you what? He's on their radar. He Listen, he he has to be he has to be on the radar for radar for for these big wigs from Jerusalem to come out and inspect what's going on. Okay, he's, he's definitely making riffs. He's definitely getting noticed. People are definitely paying attention to what's going on on all sides, both friend and and foe. Okay, but why were they so concerned about this? Because they were in power. And they wanted to maintain that power. See, Jesus, with his following, having the people behind him, he could challenge their authority. At least that's how this would have been perceived or interpreted. So instead of him coming to challenge their authority, they begin to challenge his. They ask him, by, by what authority do you do these things? Whether it was teaching or healing, they ask. Him by what authority do you do these things? And when they do this, they're asking him by what power. And the concepts, understand this, the concepts of authority and power take us into the political realm of that day. See, they saw what Jesus was doing as a political move that was unauthorized. See, they did not sanction what he did. The chief priests and elders did not grant him permission to teach. He did not go through their channels, which means they did not have control on what he did or the message that he was sending or what it reflected. And in fact, many, a lot of what he did reflected, reflected pretty poorly on them, right? So therefore, they had to stop him. So you see, what, what Jesus was doing had some serious implications that went beyond just teaching or helping feed some hungry people or healing the disease. All these actions had political implications. Look, even saying things like the kingdom of heaven is at hand could have been seen as scandalous. See, because any talk of a kingdom coming could have been seen as a challenge to the current king, kingdom, to those who were currently in power. And so while Jesus was perceived as a patron, a broker between God and people, or clients, and, and, and a healer, and a teacher, and all of this, it carried with it political implications that you could not escape in the first century. See, to be a patron automatically puts you in a certain tier, on a certain level, with automatic, not just perceived expectations— but beliefs that there was some reason, right? You had some agenda. There was something going on here. And especially to amass as much following, think think power, that Jesus had this base, it would have been perceived as a challenge, as something coming that they would need to stop, they would need to cut off, okay? And therefore, that's why they worked so hard. They worked so hard uh, to do this very thing. So everything Jesus did carried with it political implications that you could not escape in the first century. Like, 
Yeah, he was a patron doing great things. He was a broker doing great things, feeding. But you could not distinguish or separate any of that, any of those things, from the political realm of that day. People in power would have felt challenged, a perceived challenge that had to be met. And you see them trying, you see them trying to meet it. So, yeah, you, you see, the New Testament is filled with these complex narratives of, of complicated social relationships. But when you begin to see them for what they are, you begin to break them down just a bit. The, the picture it becomes more vivid and, and powerful. So yeah, there it is. Episode 98, Healing Clients and Politics. But that's not all. We still have two, at least two more episodes in this little series. And so be looking forward to those. Episode 99, and it'll take us to episode 100. So there it is, episode 98. But that's all for now. Grace and peace, and I'll talk to you soon.